the series is What's Love Got to Do With It? And uh, so today I want to talk about is marriage just a piece of paper? We're, we're using this text in Ephesians chapter 5 to talk about this. Uh, Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We talked about that last week, how the main problem with marriage is selfishness. And the way to out, get out of selfishness is to serve, outserve the other. We're going to continue on that theme a little bit today, but because that's really important. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We're not going to talk about that today. I'll fall on that sword at a later date. Husbands, love your wives. It does mean plural, but, you know, it sounds that way. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Makes sense. You're one flesh, right? After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are the members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And here, Paul is quoting from Genesis where God is, des- God is describing marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Now, I don't know if you've figured this out, but marriage, men, and women, and their relationship to each other is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. One day, several years ago, uh, I was talking with a young lady who was living with her boyfriend at the time, and uh, I was encouraging her and him to get married, which they did eventually and are still married. First and foremost, foremost, I was encouraging them to get married uh, because they had both professed their faith in Christ and wanted to be baptized. And I wouldn't baptize them until they got married. They, they did eventually, although there was, there was much uh, fire and thunder uh, <laughs> about this in this procedure, about me telling them no. Uh, I've had to tell, we tell people no all the time. Uh, not no, never. But no, you need to wait. Uh, we, don't, we don't just baptize perfect people. We baptize sinners. Uh, like you and I. But the one thing we have to acknowledge, we can never be okay with sin. We can never say, well, yeah, I do that, but it's, you know, yeah, I, I beat my wife, but, you know, God forgives me. Well, 
Yeah, technically he does, but you still need to stop beating your wife. So there are things that God, as Christians, now once we step into Christianity, we're not saved by our actions. Uh, we're, we're saved by grace. We're not shaved, shaved. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by the complete work of Christ on the cross. But having been saved, he has prepared us good works that we should enter into. In other words, our, our good works don't save us, but then our good works demonstrate to the world that Christ is actually in us. I mean, even the world expects Christians to act like Christians. They are very offended when we do not. If, I, if, the, if it came out that I was having affairs with 20 women, the every crews would show up and everyone would be aghast at my behavior. Now, everyone in the world can have affairs with everybody they want to, but there's an expectation as well there should be. That God's people will do everything they can within the strength that God gives them to be godly. Just throwing that out there. So her argument to me was, it's an argument that said a lot of, marriage is just a piece of paper. And I said, is it? Because it's not that way to God. God doesn't see marriage as just a piece of paper. He's, you know, in Genesis, God says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become, and they become one flesh. So God doesn't believe marriage is a piece of paper. God believes there's something more lasting and eternal that's taking place here. It's actually a picture of Christ in the church. We just read it. One of the main things that the picture of marriage is, it's the picture of Christ and the church. So it is important. Jesus said in Matthew 19, haven't you read, he replied, now they've just talked to him about divorce. And is it easy, okay, be divorced, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. And so he's, he's saying, you know, well, yeah, Moses allowed divorce, but, you know, you shouldn't get divorced. And so he's explaining the value of marriage. So haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. It's biology. There's male and female. There's a very small percentage of people that have some chromosome, chromosomal anomalies. Small percentage. It's not a different sex. But it's, you know, we would say, when we say we don't really believe in evolution as, as the evolutionists would describe it, they would say, it's science. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you have faith. It's science. And now today, they want to say, well, there's how many sexes are there? You can ask the question, how many sexes are there? Well, I don't know. It's science. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you think you're a woman and you're a man. You're not. You have gender dysphoria. You're confused, just like people who have body dysphoria who think they're fat when they're thin. Or, like me, I have anorexia. 
I have the fear of getting thin. So I've been working on it. Uh, so Jesus, I'm just saying, Jesus said, and it, it's interesting that Jesus, he didn't have to say this. He didn't have to say, God made them male and female. It wasn't the question. But he's answering a question that now we're asking 2,000 years later. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, Jesus added this, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When our culture defines love, it, it pretty much defines love as romantic love. So it defines love primarily as a feeling. There's nothing wrong with romantic love, but romantic love is a weak form of love. Romantic love is based on loving feelings, and loving feelings are great, but feelings are fleeting. They change with circumstances. Because you could say to your wife, oh, honey, I love you. I will always love you. And then walk out in the garage and see a long, a long dent all along the length of the car. In that moment, your loving feelings are fleeting. And you would walk into the house and say, ah, what happened? Well, our feelings change. They change with mood. They change with, dare I say this, they change with times of the month. Uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Love that is based solely on romantic feelings or based on how the other person makes you feel about yourself in the moment. This is what you got to get a hold of. This romantic feelings are about how the person makes me feel about myself. And I've said this several times, but this is what you got to get. When you have romantic feelings, the chemical thing that's happening, there's a real chemical reaction in your body. You feel in love, but you feel in love because you like the way that person makes you feel about yourself. So, because we both kind of, because the main attraction for us when we first begin a romantic relationship is nearly always physical. In other words, we, we, we see someone and we like the way they look. We, you may walk into a room, let's say you're single, and you walk into a room and there's 25 other single people. You're going to eliminate 95% of those people and only like five people, those people, that's not the right percentages, but just go with me. Okay. But five of those people are going to fit into maybe the parameters of what, you know, maybe if you're a guy, maybe you, you want her to be petite, you know, she can't be, you know, have any extra weight on her. Uh, you have a certain look about the size of her breast and her hips and all of that. And maybe that you want blonde hair and all. So you have expectations. And so you're going to narrow the room down. In reality, when you did that, you just dismissed probably some of the best marriageable people in the room because you based your selection solely on physical attraction. 
And so you try to find someone, and you know, in the goal, both male and female, you're trying to find someone that you find is suitable, and yet, at the same time, you feel like are actually, they're a higher standard than you expect you can actually get. And so, so if you talk to this person, and you think, ooh, this is really, this, this is really a special person, and they and they you begin a dating relationship with them, you're very excited because you because you have you have tricked them. <laughs> so so love is based on romantic feelings and how you the other makes you feel, feel about yourself. When the Bible speaks about love, it doesn't mean you can't have erotic or emotional feelings. It certainly does speak about those, but Biblical love is not talking about what you want to receive, but it talks about how much you're willing to give to someone else. So when you say, I love this person, what, it, what you need to be asking yourself, how much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? Paul says here, you need to love her as Christ of the church who gave himself for her. And I said last week, what do you have to do? Well, you have to die. How much of yourself are you willing to lose for say, this relationship. What are you willing to give up? How much of your freedom are, are you willing to forsake? Are you willing to quit playing golf? Are you willing to stop hunting? Are you willing to give up your hot rod? I mean, what are, what are you willing to lay down? Because if you're not willing to lay it down, you don't love her enough. You don't love him enough. You have to die to self. And this is the call of love. How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? So when a person says, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, what they're really saying is, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give you myself give myself to you that completely. I'm not willing to pay the price. My love for you has not reached the marriage level. My love for you has not overcome my fear that you will hurt me. So God sees marriage as more than a piece of paper because marriage is a covenant. And this is a different, we don't think of covenants, but marriage is different. Marriage is a covenant. It is, it's, a, it's not just a contract between a man and a woman. Actually, it's a covenant that is made. It's a promise that is made between a man and a woman and to God. So you make the promise to each other, and you also make the promise to God. Now, throughout history, there's always been consumer relationships. The consumer relationship lasts as lo- only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If an- another vendor delivers better service or the same service at a better price, you have no obligation to continue in the relationship with the original vendor. In a consumer relationship, the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. Okay? Now, the consumer mindset increasingly has invaded nearly all relationships, including marriage. 
Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. That's a consumer relationship. Sadly, nearly all relationships today are consumer relationships. Even this one, the church. Now, your relationship with Christ, hopefully, is not a consumer relationship. But even in the church, we can, it's, we're consumers shopping for a goods and a service. Now, covenant relationships are relationships that are different because they're binding on us. In a covenant relationship, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate, immediate needs of the individual. So the promise that is made has more weight than the, the feelings of the individual in that moment. Think about this. A parent-child relationship is a covenant relationship. It's one of the last understandable covenant relationships that the culture even agrees that this is a covenant relationship. Because even though we get little in return in caring for an infant, I mean, what do you get back from an infant? No sleep, poopy diapers. You know, they, may, they make faces and you know, and we think, oh, look, they're acting like they, they, they smiled and, and it was gas, you know. But we personify, we, we project on them. That's, you know, that's why we call it the terrible twos. You know why you call it the terrible twos? Because we've been projecting our feelings of how, we think, how sweet that child is on them. And at two, they start talking back. And one of the first things they say is, no. So, so a person who abandons an infant because it's inconvenient, we consider that unthinkable. I mean, it was just in the news this week where someone, some young girl had left a baby that had died. They don't know if it died before, it, before birth. Just a young, naive girl you know, 14 or 15 years old, and now they've charged it with murder. Because we think it unthinkable to abandon that covenant relationship. Now, in, we see examples of this in the Bible, and there's two kind of covenant relationships. There are horizontal relationships. The, probably the main covenant relationship we see in the Bible is the relationship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David. David was Saul's son. David was anointed to God by God to take Saul's place, which means that Jonathan, who would have been the rightful king to take Saul's place, was not going to become king. David was. But they, instead of being rivals, had a great friendship, and they made multiple covenants with each other. Not just one or two. Like four different times they made a covenant that I'm going to take care of you, you're going to take care of me. Uh, It's a covenant relationship between two people. There are also... No, that's horizontal. There's also, did I say it wrong? This is uh, horizontal between people. And there's vertical between us and God. And so you have these vertical illustrations of covenant where God makes a covenant with Abraham. 
So God makes a covenant with Abraham where he's calling me, to, I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. And Abraham says, how do I know this is going to happen? So God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham and he, he cuts the covenant with him. And the covenant always involved the shedding of blood. And he takes animals and he spreads them on the ground, they cut them in pieces and lay them on the ground. This is how covenant was made. And then the participants in the covenant would walk between the pieces of animal on the ground. It's called cutting the covenant. So in this, in this covenant, Abraham says, how do I know, God, that you will fulfill this covenant? So Abraham falls in deep sleep. God then cuts the covenant with Abraham, and God, God walks through the animal pieces. Abraham never does. Abraham doesn't. The covenant that we have, the new covenant, the covenant with God is not dependent upon us. God does everything. You see, what, when, so when, what you're saying, when you cut the covenant, you're saying, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant, then what has happened to this animal should happen to me. So we in Abraham did not fulfill the terms of the covenant, but God had walked through in our place. So since we didn't fulfill the terms of the covenant, he gave his own son who was torn to pieces in our place. Now that is the vertical covenant. We have a new covenant in Christ. Christ makes a covenant with us through the cross, through his blood. We are now participants in the new covenant. We have a covenant relationship with God. So Paul is evoking this idea of covenant when he quotes Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. These are covenant terms. So what makes marriage different is that marriage is both a, a horizontal relationship, it is also a vertical relationship that is made to God. So we make a promise to each other. And we make a promise to God. Malachi 2.14. God is responding to Israel and he says, you ask why? And it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. See, wedding vows, wedding vows... Uh, I, I've, I've tried an experiment occasionally, and I quit doing it because it didn't work, uh, in letting couples write their own wedding vows. But the reality is, when you're getting married, you really don't know what you're getting into yet. You think you do. You think you understand it. You think you love the person. You really don't love the person. As a matter of fact, you don't even know the person yet. You're going to marry a stranger. And so you don't know, so when we, when, if I, you let somebody make a wedding vow, what they tend to make a wedding vow is that I love you, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, it's about now. This is the way I feel about you right now. But that's not what wedding vows are. 
Wedding vows are a future promise. They are a promise of future love. Not only do I love you now, but I promise to love you in the future. I mean, you know, weddings are beautiful, and it's a great celebration. It's wonderful. And so it should be a given that right now in this moment, you look beautiful. I look handsome. We've got all of our friends here. Yes, I love you in this moment. I mean, that's a given. But in a wedding, you stand before God and you stand before your family and friends and you make a mutually binding promise of future love. I'm going to love you in the difficult future. We even say things like this, to have and to hold for richer, for poorer. Any of you experienced that poorer part yet? For better, for worse. Had any worse? Had some better. Had some worse. In sickness and in health. <laughs> One time I married a, an older couple. They were, you know, probably 65. They seemed really old at the time. Maybe 70. They were getting remarried. They were getting married, second marriages for both of them at least. And here's, I don't know if you know this, but I have to counsel older couples that are getting married the same way I have to do younger couples that are getting married. Hey, listen, no funny business to get married. So they were so excited about getting married. They, you know, and the thing about older people they're not what they've done the wedding deal. They're just like, it's like, Hey, you know, we get, need to get this premarital counseling over. We need to get married. We may be dead tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> you know, who knows the future, right? So, so I, I married this couple and about eight or 10 months later, he gets deathly ill. I mean, been a picture of health, very, very healthy guy. And he gets, he gets ill. And she comes to me and says, I don't know if I can take care of this guy for the rest of his life. This is not the deal that I signed up for. And I said, this is exactly the deal you signed up for. This is the deal. The deal is I'm committing myself. If I have to take care of you when you have Alzheimer's, and you don't know who I am, I'm taking care of you. If I have to change your diapers when you're 85 years old, I'm going to change your diapers. That's the deal. That's the commitment. For better or for worse, in sickness and in health. And here's the thing. If you stay around long enough, you're going to have some sickness. I mean, it wasn't three months ago I said to Tina, I've, I've never taken any medication. I've never had any problems in my life at all. And I said to Tina, this won't last forever. And now I'm on five medications. It happened in a month. 
So that's part of the deal. This is, see, it's a commitment to love, a love that endures. I, I, I promise to be loving and faithful and true in the future regardless of changing feelings and circumstances. I promise to love you, not just today. I promise to love you when it's difficult to love you. I promise to love you when you're a jerk. Because I believe you're going to love me when I'm a jerk. See, the, what people don't realize after the marriage, difficult days are coming. They're always coming. Days of not feeling very loving are coming. Days of not feeling loved. I don't feel like I'm getting the love I need. Well, neither do I. Some very difficult days are coming. You, what can keep a marriage together? A covenant. A promise. You know, we've now been married 43 years, and people say, how do you stay married 43 years? You don't quit at 42. You didn't quit at 20. You didn't, set, you know, you can look back and say, oh, seven was tough. Nine was no bed of roses. You know, I mean, you know, all of us, we can look back and say, there were very difficult days. How do you make it to 43? Or like Wayne and Mary Goodell this week, 60 years. How, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's not amazing for them because they're both amazing people. But, but 60 years, how do you do it? You, you don't quit at 59. You, ne- you, 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 you keep the promise because it's a promise. Oh, I'm back to the very beginning. Let's just preach this all over again. <laughs> Is there ever a biblical reason for divorce? And I'm out of time, so I'm going to say this quick. Yes. Jesus says there is a reason for infidelity. You're not bound in the relationship if the spouse commits infidelity or has an affair. But I will also say this. this. In this church, there are people who had affairs, and once the fling had flung, and threw them out the other side, they were able to restore their marriage, and their marriage today is great. It's, it, it, it doesn't have to. It, does, it, it can end it. It's even a biblical reason to end it, but it doesn't have to end it. If both of you love God and are, can experience forgiveness. And then Paul gives the reason of an abandonment. If an unbeliever unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live. Divorce and peace. So there are biblical reasons for divorce. I'm not saying you can never, ever divorce. But we do know this, that if you stay together, two out of three marriages five years later that were unhappy are happy. And everyone in every married couple in this place has been through unhappy seasons. They don't, may not admit it but, because they don't want to get hit. But we have been, all of us. It's the power of a promise. Lewis Smedes wrote an article, Controlling the Unpredictable, The Power of Promising. He said, he said this, some people ask who they are and expect their feelings to tell them. But feelings are flickering flames that fade at every fitful stimulus. Here, Paul commands us to love. 
However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And Paul uses the word for respect for men because respect feels like love to men. Now, he's not commanding feelings. When, we see, when the world says love, it says it's a feeling. When God says love, it's an action. Real love, genuine love, is not carried around by the motions. It is carried around by our commitments, by our promises. Instead of letting feelings lead us, our beliefs lead us. Who we are in Christ, our faith in Christ. Then our actions lead us and our feelings follow. See, the world, the world sees love like a disease, I, you know, like, you, like it just happened. You, couldn't, you know, it's like the coronavirus. I, you know, I, was, I was fine, and all of a sudden I was in love. You know, or like a ditch, you fall, I fell in love. Ha! Ah! You know, <laughs> what happened? Where, what happened to him? Well, he fell in love. Uh, you know what the catchphrase is today in the world? You can't help who you love. Yes, you can. <laughs> You absolutely can. If you, you are not at the mercy of your feelings. If you decide that you love a 12-year-old boy and you're a teacher in school, you can help who you love. You are not at the mercy of your feelings. So how do we create love and romance? How do you create love and romance? So now you've been married a while, and you know, and you feel like Barry White singing, the thrill is gone, the thrill is gone, baby. Barry does a better job than that, I'm sorry. Uh, what does the Bible say? Jesus said this. He said to the church in Laodicea, he said, I'm concerned because you've left your first love. He says, hey, here's how you get it back. How do you get your first love back? He says... Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. How do you fall back in love? You start spending time with each other. You start giving attention to each other. You start giving affection to each other. And you can restore the relationship. And then you just practice, you do the stuff of love. What's the stuff of love? Well, you know, 1 Corinthians gives us a list. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Love is patient. Love is kind. What if you did those two? What if you just, what if you took the, the list from Corinthians? Love is patient. Love is kind. What if you said, okay, in my house with my spouse, I'm going to be patient and kind. What if you just, what if you just did those two things? What if you were just kind to your spouse, as kind to your spouse as you often are to strangers? What if you were as patient with your spouse as you are with other people? So what if you said, okay, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't think I have the power to do everything in the love list, so I'm going to trust God to help me just do a couple of things. What if you did those two things? You could revolutionize your marriage within a couple of weeks by being patient and being kind. So when someone says to you, I don't need a piece of paper to show love, you might say, this. yes, you do. You do need a piece of paper to show that you love the way that God wants you to love. For biblical love, marry, marryable love. What you're saying is, if you're not wanting to get married, is that you don't love them enough to give up your life. And that's what it calls it to. And here's, here's, here's the fun part. Some of you, and I'm going to try not to make any eye contact, <laughs> some of you are living together now. And you're Christians. 
and you need to get married. Dun, 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 dun. There's, no, there's no secret answer. That's it. You need to get married. If, you don't, if you're not willing to marry that person, if you don't love them enough to marry them, move out. Because if it's about economics and not obedience to God, that's a problem with God. Amen? I love you. I love you, and I'm only telling you that because I want what's best for you. And I'll do everything I can to help you get married. And here's the thing. You don't have to have a fancy wedding. And maybe you, maybe you want a fancy wedding, okay? Have a fancy wedding. But, but come and get married and then have a fancy wedding. But quit living in, as a Christian who says, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, but I'm going to live the way that I want to live. You can't do that. You have to be at war with sin. Are you a sinner? Yes. Am I a sinner? Yes. We can't be okay with it just because the world says it's okay. Amen. Let's stand and pray, so I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It is more than a piece of paper. It's a covenant. You've called us to a covenant relationship because we've made a promise to you and we've made a promise to each other. And the Lord, not based on our feelings, but based on our willingness to obey you because you have called you have to be your own. You have made us your own. You've empowered us by your Holy Spirit. You have given us the ability to do the works of the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So Lord, I pray you'd empower us to walk in obedience. And every couple that's struggling with this, that's living together, I don't want condemnation on them. That's not your desire. But Lord, I want to I hope that you will bring them to a place where they desire to change and walk in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.